I'm Liz Logan, and you're listening to Collecting Culture, a podcast about passionate collectors and the objects they love. It's the holidays, which often means spending time with family and growing a collection or two, perhaps. So for this month's episode, my brother Andrew, who is also the co-producer of this podcast, had the inspired idea to make this episode a conversation with our family. Andrew, my mom and dad and I are each collectors in our own way. So we all got together to talk about some of the objects that are most meaningful to us, our favorite things, if you will. The natural place to start was with our dad, who is the OG collector of our family. The man collects so, so many things. Vintage Hawaiian shirts, bolo ties handmade by famous Native American silversmiths, records, art books, watches, even ugly Christmas sweaters. Like me, my dad has a lot of different interests and his collections reflect these varied passions. In fact, he was a major inspiration for this podcast. Because he's a writer and a poet, Dad chose to share his collection of poetry broadsides, which bring together his interests in poetry and art. A poetry broadside is a poem printed on a single sheet, typically as a limited edition, designed or illustrated by an artist. They're often created using time-consuming printing techniques such as letterpress. The tradition of printing broadsides goes all the way back to the invention of the printing press itself, They're yet another populist incarnation of street literature, along the lines of political pamphlets, leaflets, and such. Benjamin Franklin was printing poetry broadsides in 18th century Philadelphia. In the 1960s and 70s, printing became more affordable and an important vehicle for radical social and political movements. So it makes sense that around that time, poetry broadsides as an art form took off. My dad's poetry broadside collection numbers in the hundreds, and he's exhibited pieces from his collection at Pyramid Atlantic Art Center in Maryland, a nonprofit that's focused on artistic printing and book arts. As for my collections, I chose to talk about two very different purses from my bag and purse collection. Andrew then shared some of his favorite screen print posters, Mostly music posters, although he also has a screen print Star Wars poster. Interestingly, screen print posters are basically the music world equivalent of a poetry broadside. Finally, my mom, who is a painter and mixed media artist, shared a few pieces from her extensive collection of wearable art jewelry. Stay tuned to find out why she likes to wear dirt around her neck. But first, we start with Dad and a broadside featuring a black and white image of Paul Robeson, the famous actor, singer, and civil rights activist. Okay, well, this is broadside. Uh, The poem is by Naomi Shehab Nye, and it's called Cross That Line. It's about Paul Robeson, and Paul Robeson was uh, an actor, an athlete, a very talented guy. Uh, he was extremely left-wing, and he would go to the Soviet Union, and uh, as a result, he became very controversial in the United States, and uh, he was, for instance, denied the right to sing in Canada. 
So they had a concert where uh, he sang into Canada, uh, where there was a very large audience sitting on folding chairs, uh, waiting to hear him. And uh, Naomi wrote this poem. Uh, I'll just read the end of it. Uh, remind us again, brave friend, what countries may we sing into? What lines should we all be crossing? What songs travel toward us from far away to deepen our days? And the illustration is by a famous illustrator named Barry Moser. He turns out, according to the bottom of the broadside, to be uh, the printer of Smith College as well. So he has done illustrations for a lot of these broadsides uh, made by the Smith College Poetry Center. And I particularly love that broadside because I'm a big fan of, of uh, Paul Robeson as well as Naomi Shehab Nye. Okay, so that's the first one. The second one, this is a broadside by a friend of mine named Julio Granda. And he is in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. And uh, he's probably done more broadsides than any one person, uh, any other person. Well, uh, let's kind of describe what we're looking at here. This is like a, it's it's like a very weathered uh, canvas. Mom, yeah, would you like say? it's a it's a handmade paper, and then it has different layers of text that are, yes. are layered on top of it, and part of it is letter pressed at the top. Um, right, and um, it's almost like a ghost image, and the and it was looks like it was printed the other way in the ghost image because the father's here is yes backward you could actually see through the paper as well uh, so it could be mounted between two pieces of glass so. a a a anyway the uh, poem is by grace paley and it's signed by her the poem is called fathers and here's the beginning of it Fathers are more fathering these days. They have accomplished this by being more mothering. What luck for them that women's lib happened. Then the dream of new fathering began to shine in the eyes of free women and was irresistible. Uh, I love this poem, and I think uh, Julio did a great job with the broadside. Uh, he actually played with it quite a bit, and I have different versions that he did. Uh, so a few different broadsides. But I can see why you chose that one as one of your favorites, because Dan was very involved in what was in the 1970s called the men's movement, which were the early men who were feminists and supported feminists, but also cared a great deal about their own roles and how their own roles could change so that they could be more emotionally available and part of the family. Is that right? I think you said that very well. Good. <laughs> In 2007, 
in Iraq, uh, they had uh, a street of book sellers. And this street was considered the intellectual heart of Iraq. It's called Al Mutanabi Street. And in 2007, there was a truck bombing, and 26 people were killed in that bombing. And the street was, uh, the businesses on the street were devastated. And this had a huge negative impact in Iraq. And a lot of sympathy was generated among literary people in the United States as well. So they did a project, which is actually still going on, uh, about Al-Mubtanabi Street. Um, there's been uh, a book and uh, several exhibits of broadsides uh, that have been done. And I like this broadside uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, it is a poem by an Iraqi poet named Abdul Sattar. And part of it is in English and part of it is in Arabic. And the two sides of the broadside with the two, the, the English and the translation are literally tied together with thread. It's a broadside by Bettina Pauli and I, I think it's just wonderful. Let me just read the beginning and the end of this poem. The explosion in Al Mutanabi Street didn't just target people, but also language and thought itself. Iraqi culture, really. And then at the end, but life goes on. It's an illusion to think that people can be completely defeated. The earth keeps turning. Life continues. There is still a sun that rises, and there is hope despite all the destruction. I love that. I love all of the broadsides that you chose. I feel like all of those poems gave me goosebumps and are very relevant to our times today, make us think about things differently. And I love that your broadsides like bring together your interest in poetry and your interest in art and are able to tie those two together. Well, I wanted to piggyback a little on what we were talking about, about traveling. And it's when you collect something, it's so nice when you're traveling that you can just look for that one thing. Uh, because I sent you guys a photo of this new, I collect purses and I, I've always loved purses and shoes. I mean, I love fashion in general, but there's something about purses and there's something about shoes like purses are just, they're almost like sculptural objects. The same thing with shoes. And I was just in Japan and I got this in Tokyo. And it, I got it at a store called Blue and White, which is dedicated to uh, the traditional crafts of Japan and keeping 
uh, supporting traditional the traditional crafts of Japan and the artisans who are still engaging in these traditional craft mediums. And so I just love this bag. It's like so because I love crafting and sewing and knitting, and it has this sashiko sti- stitching, Japanese sashiko sti- stitching, going all the way across the front of it. And it has this Japanese motif. It has some Japanese writing on it and a flower motif. I just think it's so cool. And then on the back of it, it has the same sashiko stitching, but it looks almost like outer space or something. It just has like a very free form constellation-like motif on the back. And it has some French knots, which I love French knots so much. They're really fun to make. I don't like doing embroidery, but I love French knots. What's a French knot? It's a stitch and in, in embroidery that makes it look, it looks just like, like a, a dot. Like a period. And you wrap the thread around the needle two or three times and then you insert the needle and you pull on it and it leaves a little dot of embroidery thread. And they are quite wonderful. I love them too. And this bag, I think, is just incredible. Uh, all the stitching, all this, you know, people who do that kind of work, I think, do it almost as a meditation because I agree with you. I could never sit, I don't think I could just sit and do that. I'd, it's almost got to be a meditative act where you're repeating, repeating, repeating. Some artists have actually, they make entire paintings just of French knots. Like they make entire works of art where they, it's like a landscape or whatever, and it's just French knots. It's really incredible. So I love a good French knot. Yeah, that must be amazing. The other piece that I wanted to talk about, which I sent you guys a picture of, is my one and only Judith Lieber bag, which mom bought me for my wedding. And it's a, a clutch, which I learned, I have since learned, is, is actually called a minodier, is the actual name for it. Um, and it's one of her pieces that, it's very small, and it's one of her pieces that's like all encrusted in Swarovski. So I feel like this is like the polar opposite of the super crafty stitched Japanese bag. So after I got this bag, I became very interested in Judith Lieber. And I knew that there was going to be an exhibition of Judith Lieber bags at the Museum of Art and Design here in New York. And so I actually pitched a story to First Dibs because I write for their online magazine about Judith Lieber and... Uh, I had some quotes from her in my story, and I learned all about her, and she is an absolutely fascinating woman. She um, was born in Budapest, and her family was Jewish, and during the Holocaust, they were fleeing to different sites in Budapest, trying to um, flee the Gestapo, and uh, she then um, emigrated to the United States after the war and she married she married an american gi and she just was an incredible craftsman she was the only female pattern maker in the handbag at a handbag company in hungary 
And when she came to the United States, then she she worked for a handbag maker and then she started her own business like in the 60s. So she just had an incredible life. Yeah. So now this bag is even more meaningful to me because I know her story. In the second half of our conversation, Andrew talks about why he can't get enough of screen print posters. And my mom shares a few weird, wild, and earthy pieces of wearable art jewelry. Part of what I like about screen printing uh, in, in particular is that it's an artificial uh, barrier that you've put on yourself that it's not, it's not a photograph, it's not painting, you can't do whatever you want, you, you have bounds to what is physically possible often that it has to be only four colors and you combine the four colors with half tones or, or different uh, techniques to create these these posters um, and there's a limited aspect of it a lot of these are you know of uh, 250 or 100 prints um, and so and th I think there's also an element that comes from the bounds that a lot of screen print posters tend to be modern and kind of maybe contemporary um, themes. Because you have hard ones. edge. It's hard to do a soft edge on a, on a silk screen. Yeah, then you have to do half tones. Or, yes, yeah. yes. That makes and a half lot of toning sense. is when you take the, the, uh, a shade and you render it in dots that are mm -hmm. smaller and smaller and smaller. And, and it creates the effect, your of eye a creates a, 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 yeah, a gradient. And this is a gig poster. A lot of things that these artists do will be for, for uh, rock musicians or, or pop musicians or uh, music festivals um, to promote um, you know, posters. Uh, as well as movie posters. There's a big resurgence of, of movie posters and one of the big, uh, there's a company that works with Alamo Drafthouse um, called Mondo that has, they get the rights to Star Wars and they'll have new artists go back and re-render. Um, so this is like a re-rendering of the most famous scene from uh, Empire Strikes Back, the second Star Wars movie. But, uh, Obviously, this was from the 2000s, um, but they got the rights to do this poster and uh, really am attracted to the colors, uh, the color scheme and the way that it is rendered in gradients um, and how it's kind of distressed at the bottom. Um, and we have this hanging in uh, my bedroom. There's a print that I gave you, Liz, um, I kickstart, I helped kickstart this artist, Cameron Mole, went, did a uh, letterpress of the Brooklyn Bridge. And so it looks like a very, uh, you know, a very straightforward print, but then when you start to get into it, you realize that they're all letters. letters. It's all little words and letters, not uh, not meaningful words, yes. but they're all. It's all rendered in letters. Um, so I thought that was very cool, and also letterpress, so it has that texture feel to it, mm -hmm. and was incredibly laborious, no doubt, for some typesetter to uh, to undertake that project. 
Um, and I really love that, uh, especially for you, Liz, because I thought this is, it's Brooklyn and it's words. It's Brooklyn and it's, and it's letters. It's, it's it was all perfect for her. Crafty, yeah. Thank you, yeah, we love it. We love it over here. And then um, most recently, I really like this guy. I, I got to meet my one of my big uh, screen printing idols, James Flames, at the craft fair in DC last week and bought a couple prints from him. And this is one for Hopscotch, which is a music festival um, that I have not been to. I believe it's in North Carolina. And just love the way it's, it's sad and brooding, but also uh, colorful at the same time. Yes. Um, so we had to get some new new prints to hang for winter. Absolutely. Swap out the uh, the spring prints. Okay, mom, tell us about your collecting. Well, I think I'll start by saying I don't think of myself as a collector. But having been married to a collector for forty years, maybe I started collecting a little bit in. Uh, in, uh, I don't know. Sympathetic. If, I don't know if Dad inspired me to collect, or if I, or if in my head I said, "Gosh darn it! If you're going to collect, I'm going to collect. You can't be the only one to have some collections in this family." So um, it's competitive. <laughs> it's competitive collecting. Um, and the three pieces I brought. Actually, there's four, but two are by the same artist. Um, I collect wearable art jewelry, so it's handmade jewelry made by individual artists. It's, I don't have a, it's not a very, very large collection, but I bet I have 50 pieces if I counted them up. And I brought three of my favorites, and I'm going to start with the one that is, uh, looks like the bezel of of a watch and there are seven of these bezels that are connected with a chain and in each bezel there's a different color of dirt uh, and it's all ochre dirt yellow ochre and on the back of each bezel it tells you what country the dirt is from and one of the bezels has dirt from Poland and I have a Polish background so when I saw this it just grabbed me because I thought how wonderful to wear Polish dirt around my neck and it's also <laughs> very, it's also very beautiful because it's all yellow ochre colors like if you've ever been I don't know if you you kids remember when we did a trip to southern France we went to a town called Gorge where they have the ochre in the ground and it's really a very reddish color this this the ochres here are are yellow and i guess she must have i don't know how she traveled around the world or if she wrote to her friends but this artist jennifer trask um likes to make jewelry out of little bones and little feathers and she puts them in these bezels so they're contained under glass and I just find her work, it's stunning, it's beautiful to look at, but it's also very earthy, and it has meaning for me. I think there is, you know, something ethereal about 
earth. It, let's not, you know, we disparage it by calling it dirt. Uh, earth is, is such a, um, it can evoke really such emotions. There's smell to it. There's a t touch, a tactile touch to it, not in this specific case. Um, and then of course the color. And mm -hmm. I know I've, I talked to another collector who had a, a record that came with a bag of dirt that <laughs> was to earth uh, <laughs> to you. really evoke a very specific memory. You're right. I shouldn't call it dirt. It's not dirt. And I shouldn't call it dirt. It's earth. It's earth. We still corrected. A, it was a yes. joke. It was a joke. <laughs> Mom, you're an artist. Obviously, you would not want jewelry that, you know, has been replicated so many times and that is mass market and that everyone's going to be wearing. Um, That's you're right. such a unique soul and need to have jewelry to match. So do you do you think it's important to also support these artists and let that sort of be have yourself be active in this artistic ecosystem? Yes, I I do like to support artists and but I also just love handmade things. I think of myself as a maker and I just honor people who make things so much. And in fact, we have just had some construction done on our house, and I want to tell you, I just honor these workmen who are so skilled at doing all sorts of things that they're laying tiles and they're cutting mirrors and they're, you know, making cabinetry. And I think there's a part of us, and especially right now today, that have lost touch with honoring the makers of the world. And mom, what you have here are a few necklaces. Do you prefer necklaces as opposed to bracelets and rings? I tend to collect necklaces, neck pieces. For some reason, that's what I like to wear. Like I don't wear bracelets. I don't like bracelets. I do have some rings, but I, I brought these neck pieces. The, the next two um, were done by an artist named Anne Citrone, and she has lived in Turkey, Israel, Greece, Paris, all over the world. She's in her 80s now. And she does very earthy um, pieces. Like the piece I'm, I'm looking at now, which is very special to me, I gave her the pods from my garden of a plant called Love in a Mist. And she electroplated them, and then she enamels them over the electroplating. And so I actually have this, this necklace that has things from my garden in it, which is totally enchanting to me. It's a beautiful piece, but it just, oh my God, it's from my garden. Wow, that is awesome. So the actual plant is in there. What's electroplating? Yes. She, all right. The plant dries out and becomes this pod, and it gets dipped into some kind of a hydrochloride solution that is actually dangerous. She has it in her studio, and she has electricity attached to it, and these things get dipped in there, and somehow, I don't understand electroplating, but it, it makes the pod hard. 
and puts a coating on it so that you can now enamel over it. It becomes like almost a copper coating on the piece. And then the next step is to put enamels on it and fire it in a kiln. So it's quite a process to do this. Wow, how long does it take? Oh, I think I know that I've gone to her studio. I mean, I think it, you might have to leave it in there maybe 24 hours. Wow. To get to get it electroplated. It sounds like science fiction. It sounds Well, awesome. the next the next piece I'm going to talk it's about very looks like science fiction and she made it specifically for me and I when I opened it, I thought to myself, you wouldn't make this for just anybody. So I'll <laughs> describe it so people can look at it. It has what looks like a, a, a large egg that then has two prickly pods with some beads in between. And it, it's kind of grotesque, but I think it's quite beautiful and it's quite organic. And I just love the fact that it's, I don't know, it's like alive. It's a very organic. I really don't wear it that often, but I love it. I have it hanging in my bedroom so I can at least look at it. It does look a little like something that the mother in Beetlejuice would wear. Yes, right. yes. You know yes. that movie? Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes. Sculptural, grotesque. But tell me, because Anne is a dear friend of yours who you've known forever. So how does that play a role? How did, did she just start making things for you as gifts or how did this happen? You know, I wish I could remember. I think, she, well, she's always made things out of natural fibers and, and uh, found objects and natural uh, thistles and things like that. So I think when I found this love in a mist that when it, after it bloomed, it became this beautiful uh, shaped pod. I brought them into her just because I knew she'd love to have these. And so she started, <laughs> she started electroplating them and she made one of the necklaces for me. So your jewelry collection, or at least the pieces you've shown us are, is very personal and it's, it's things that resonate with you on a deeper level than the eyeball. I think so. I think I don't collect in an intellectual way to say, oh, this is an up and coming artist and I should have her piece in my collection or his piece in my collection. I collect what speaks to me and what I'm drawn to. And it tends to be very, ethnic and a little bohemian and a little more on the funky side than the highly polished, um, very, you know, um, tight kind of work. So yes, I think you sort of, you, you just um, collect what you love. This is the last episode of Collecting Culture for the time being. Andrew and I are taking an indefinite hiatus to make time for other projects. So for now, a big thank you to our listeners for spending your time with us and spreading the word about our podcast. We hope you enjoy your collecting as much as we've enjoyed making this. 